You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Mathematica, and Wolfram Alpha. Coming up, the third and final episode of a series exploring the future of AI and civilization recorded live at the Wolfram Summer School at Bentley University. In this last installment, Stephen answers questions about the simulation hypothesis, AI as an alien intelligence, and what something like computational democracy might look like in the future. Let's have a listen. So, so the question is, when computational thinking and the ability to uh, express oneself in kind of symbolic knowledge-based language, when, when that becomes ubiquitous, how will that change society? And you know, 500 years ago, literacy sort of swept through much of the world. And how did that change society? Well, it meant that the kinds of social organizations that were possible were much more sophisticated than were possible before. We could write down a lot of stuff. We could have, you know, we, people didn't have to, uh, you know, we didn't have to have people reciting the law until they got to the place where, because that hadn't happened for a while, but that was, a, that was an earlier time in human history. But we had, we had much better ways for sort, of, for sort of knowledge to be communicated and so on. So I think there are some very obvious ways that uh, kind of knowledge-based language and symbolic representations, precise sort of computable representations of things will change things. I mean, uh, at a very sort of simple-minded level, you know, I think it's the you go into a restaurant, you order from a menu today. In the future, you go into a restaurant, you give them a piece of code that represents the food you want to have made. Um, and there's generalizations of that all over the place. In other words, rather than just saying, um, you know, uh, the first level, it's kind of things like the diagnosis, a medical diagnosis. It's you have X. Well, no, actually, here's a piece of code that represents what you have that can then be run against some other piece of code that uh, uh, can figure out what to do type thing. Or, you know, it's, it's a much richer, uh, sort of more actionable form of explaining things. I, you know, I think another question is, what does the civilization of the AIs look like? That is, we right now are used to sort of humans interacting with humans and, you know, uh, transferring knowledge between humans when a decent fraction of the entities in the world are AIs and they're transferring knowledge between themselves and so on. How does that work? And how does it work? You know, one of, the, one of the things that's sort of a bad case for us is if it turns out the AIs effectively invent a billion concepts and our little brains can't deal with a billion concepts and the AIs are happily communicating with each other using those billion concepts and we're just completely left behind. So, you know, I think that the, the question of whether, you know, the, um, the question of sort of, uh, uh, sort of computational symbolic literacy for humans is a question of, do we get to keep up with the AIs or not? That's something that's not obvious how that's going to play out. Um, if we do get to keep up with the AIs, and that, that again relates a lot to this kind of, you know, this, this uh, concept, you know, this sort of flow of concepts, because, you know, in this speculation that there comes a time, you know, that at any time in history, you only have to know about the same number of things to, to understand how to deal with the world given the level of automation and technology that exists in the world, that's kind of a one point of view about things. Or it could be that to get ahead, you've got to have a billion concepts. You know, you've got to understand a billion concepts that our brains aren't big enough to, to be able to deal with. I think that, um, uh, you know, this question of, um, well, at some level, I feel quite inadequate to answer the question of what kind of universal computational literacy will actually do for the world in the same kind of way as it's very hard to predict. I mean, if you look at sort of predictions of what will happen in, in, in the future, they are as difficult to come up with as these sort of next levels of concepts. I mean, it's interesting to look at the mistakes, okay? So for example, uh, computers, you know, universal computation, Turing, things like that. What were the actual first computers? Well, they were database machines. They were later word processors, both of which are in a sense trivial and frivolous uh, consequences of this idea of universal computation. And it's only kind of now with things like Wolfram Language that we're actually getting to widely use kind of actual universal computation. But, you know, the early applications of that were, were sort of trivial and, and frivolous. And so I don't know, um, you know, what, for example, with smart contracts, when, when computationally represented contracts become common, one thing that will happen is there'll be a lot more contracts in the world, for better or worse. It's the same thing as when 
you know, when desktop publishing came in, people said there'll be a lot less paper in the world, there'll be a lot less stuff produced and printed and so on. And of course, that wasn't what happened because it became so much easier to do those things that, that everybody could do them and there were lots more of them. And so I suspect what will happen is, you know, today it's comparatively hard to, you know, create, enforce, define contracts. By the time they're all sort of computational, that becomes much, much easier. And so a vast number of things that previously we wouldn't have bothered with that, we will define them in, in these sort of contractual terms for whatever it's worth. I think um, in, uh, you know, when it comes to, an interesting question is humans communicating with each other. So, uh, you know, I have seen um, in, for example, you know, you write Wolfram language code, it's actually a pretty good way to explain how something works. I noticed, you know, writing that elementary introduction book. Early in the book, the exercises were sort of easier to state in English than they were in code. By the time one was later in the book, it was easy to understand what the code should be. It was quite hard to figure out what the English should be to describe it. And so this is a sense in which more sophisticated concepts get expressible than people can normally express in human language. I mean, it's, you know, I've seen only one example with some 11 and 12 year olds in the Bay Area about a year ago now who had been studying Wolfram language and who could speak Wolfram language, okay? Uh, I felt extremely inadequate because I couldn't understand it at that, at that speed. Um, and uh, it, was, it was interesting because it's a, you know, it is an interesting thing that that is even possible is interesting and not obvious to me. I mean, it's, it's um, you know, and it's something where I mean, that, that would certainly be, and I, I haven't, you know, if that became a widespread thing, just like people, you know, will use mathematics to some extent to express, you know, uh, and they'll speak mathematics and they'll write it down in this funky notation and so on. So one can imagine that that happens with a whole set of concepts. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I certainly find that, you know, as a fluent, fairly fluent writer, at least of Wolfram language, I routinely will start to type code before I could explain that code which is the same thing that happens when you know a human language fluently. You know, when you don't know it fluently, you think in your native language and then you think, how am I going to translate this? As soon as you're fluent in the, in the new language, you don't, you don't, you know, it just comes out. Um, and it's the same thing with, with, with writing code. Um, you know, what are the consequences? You know, I think it's pretty, uh, you know, if we look at literacy, um, you know, we can see some of its consequences. If we look at language itself, we can see, you know, the, the key consequence, I suppose, of language itself was the construction of civilization and the progressive construction of things. Um, and literacy, I suppose, accelerated that. And so the question would be, uh, you know, what, what are the qualitative effects? I mean, it, it's, so, it's, it's, um, it's so strange, actually, that a lot of big innovations, big conceptual innovations, have had their first consequences that were really killer apps were in a sense almost trivial, like word processing from computers. Um, like, uh, you know, there, there are a bunch of these where you can try and figure out what they be, like airplanes, another one, where what was the, you know, people didn't know what the killer app of airplanes would be. Would it be aerial reconnaissance? Would it be, uh, you know, cargo, you know, taking the mail from here to there? Would it be people going from here to there? People didn't figure out until a little while later that it could be dropping things like bombs from, from planes and so on. Um, you know, there were a bunch of different different possible uses, and people didn't know what would be. And, and similarly, right now, I mean, there's one that's kind of an interesting one that's playing out, which is commercial space exploration or commercial space stuff, where it's really quite unclear what the killer app will be, if there will be one. Maybe there won't be one. I mean, it's, you know, the fact that early on, uh, you know, kind of, I'm not sure that people really grokked, I don't really know, but, but um, uh, in the early days, you know, when people were imagining putting up artificial satellites, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, looking down on the Earth and making, you know, satellite photographs, I don't know how big, how high that was on the agenda. I don't know, you know, communication satellites were somewhat anticipated, but how much of a big deal it was to have a bunch of satellites sitting in geostationary orbit, unknown. GPS, I don't think that was anticipated at all. And yet it's a, you know, it, in a sense, GPS is a, one could almost say a trivial consequence of having, you know, of being able to have artificial satellites. And so I think, you know, one of the things that's difficult to imagine is, I'll give you another example, social media as a consequence of the internet. 
you know, not, you know, in a sense, it's a trivial consequence of the internet, um, and uh, uh, you know, but not not really anticipated. It's also the case that often there are prodromes of major developments that you can go back and see from long ago. I mean, it's, I'm always fond of the fact that you know, Gauss had an early fax machine, but it took, you know, it took actually. Fax machines are an interesting story in terms of technology, uh, sort of futurism and so on, because you know, Gauss had a fax machine. It was a telegraph thing that was hooked up to essentially send an image. Um, then 100 years later, basically, people had um, uh, you know, sort of digital fax machines started to come in. And probably even you guys, are, many of you guys are too young to, I mean, fax machines were the big sort of communication medium before you know, you could send email attachments and things like this. Um, and uh, there was this one moment when FedEx, which existed, invented this thing called Zap Mail, which was this thing where they would, uh, where it was sort of within a two hours or something, delivery of something. And the way it worked was they had a small number of fax machines in different FedEx offices, and you would send something. You would, you would, somebody would pick something up. They would take it to a local office. They would fax it to another office. And then somebody would deliver the fax at the other end. Okay, so that was a thing that lasted for all of about six months because the curve of consumer fax machines was climbing so quickly that it just didn't make any sense later. Um, and uh, and then of course now fax machines pretty much don't make any sense anymore because we have a sort of an overarching technology. But again, it's just so hard to predict. Um, I mean, another sometimes. I found it's easier to predict what will happen than when it will happen. That is, there are things which are sort of inevitable, but it's just not clear when. I mean, in, in, you know, and sometimes there are really weird reasons that things don't happen quickly. Like, for example, um, my wife is fond of giving me a hard time for a prediction that I made in the early 90s that there would be uh, very thin televisions. Okay? So it's like building some piece of some house. It's like make this niche. It only needs to be four inches deep because that's how deep televisions will be. That was in, when was that? That was 1993. Okay? So of course now there are very thin televisions. But it took an extra nearly 20 years for those to arrive. Um, and why was I wrong? Well, you know, I was actually, I had seen flat screen televisions. So I knew they were possible. The mistake was that the yields, the production yields, were too low, and it was took a long time. You know, if you have a television and a few pixels are burnt out, it's really um, it's really a bad television, so to speak. And it took a long time before before it became possible to make. You know, you could get one in a thousand televisions would be okay based on previous manufacturing techniques, but it took a long time to perfect the manufacturing techniques to get it so that you could actually have a, a really working large number of pixels television. I mean, another one of these that's was interesting is helicopters, which have never become all that common. Um, and uh, you know, that's, that's partly for reliability reasons, I think. Um, and then the question now is with drones, for instance. Drones, you know, quadricopter-type drones, um, they could have been common. Well, they, they weren't common earlier because the control systems to fly them simply didn't exist. You couldn't build a flight controller. You know, now it's trivial to build a flight controller with microprocessors and things, but in the past, that was the issue, and that, that was the issue for aeroplanes as well. I mean, that was the big invention of the Wright brothers was the control system to actually make flight controllable, so to speak. Um, and that, uh, and so you know, it's like the brain has to be in there. But but you know, with with quadricopters, for example, it's it's um, uh, it's quite unobvious what will happen. Um, you know, again, one seeing sort of the playing out of of um, uh, you know, given fast microprocessors, the fact that you can make drones was quite unobvious. I mean, it was um, uh, so. I mean, I think I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, you know, it's really hard to do these futurism things because the central thing that becomes possible is usually not the thing that's actually the first thing that's important. That is, you know, given the concept of universal computers, you might have thought many things that would be significant and would be really a core consequence of universal computers, but word processing isn't one of them. And because it's a trivial application, um, and so similarly, with with sort of uh, being able to represent things in code, I, I don't know what what the um, what the consequence might be. I mean, I think that there are uh, one can start thinking about kind of um, well, you know, there are all kinds of bizarre things. For example, I mean, if just to throw out bizarre things, 
you know, the operation of a democracy in, the world, in a world where you don't just vote, you write a piece of code. Who knows how that plays out? In other words, you say, these are my preferences, right? Rather than just saying, I vote for this guy or this guy, you say, my preferences are represented by this piece of code. Now, normally, in the past, um, you know, it's um, uh, the, the only way people have found to aggregate the opinions of many people are through voting type systems. Um, but actually, I just, I just thought of this. this is actually an interesting idea. You know, imagine that every citizen could basically represent their preferences as a piece of code. Um, then, uh, you know, then you can basically expect something where you know, there is a machine that then can aggregate those pieces of code. It can run all these simulations. It can figure out all this stuff. Actually, that's an interesting. This is an interesting idea. People have asked me at different times whether whether the sort of a what the consequences of sort of computational politics, so to speak. Oh, I've never thought of this one before, but that that is an obvious you know possible thing, and that would be um, you know that would be pretty interesting. Now, whether what would actually happen might be people would run these big campaigns. I mean, this is the kind of thing that happens in the world, and it's so freaking bizarre. Is that you know you have this idea, and then like I remember when the web came in, okay. And I knew about you know the hypertext transfer protocol, you know colon slash slash, blah 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 blah. And pretty soon you would see trucks driving around with with uh, URLs painted on them. And I just thought that was the weirdest thing because this was a deeply techy, you know, uh, thing about transfer protocols and so on. And pretty soon it was on trucks. And so I can imagine you know in this model of kind of the future of code-based democracy, so to speak, the next thing you see is people with big placards. With pieces of code written on the placard saying, you know, this is this is the piece of code. You know, this is the code fragment. You should uh, support this code fragment, so to speak. Um, and that's uh, that's kind of the way that these um, uh, these things play out. But I mean, if you're asking, so so now we're on a roll thinking about what consequences this could have. I mean, I think that one that one is kind of an interesting one. I I mean, I wonder what consequences this has for education at a more sort of serious level because there's a question of um, whether uh, well, I mean, I suppose here's another thing. So, yeah, this is an interesting one. So if you imagine, so there's this idea that was in education 100 years ago of these so-called ciphering books, where you would learn mathematics by basically writing down over the course of many years those mathematical facts that you, know, you would find useful later in life. I was interested that, um, uh, you know, in Craig Carter's talk about using Wolfram language in education, he was kind of reinventing the ciphering book and saying, okay, you can do your calculations in material science or whatever, um, and you know, you can record what you did, and you can then use those, those, your version of these calculations forever. Okay, so here's a version of this. So imagine that uh, in the course of education, that you kind of write down essentially a representation of yourself and your preferences in code that one of the purposes of education becomes to be kind of self-discovery about you know, who you are represented kind of symbolically in code. So you might discover and then so that then so both you know you learn how to do things in the world by writing your version of a piece of code. So the first step there is to say okay you're gonna learn how to think about some kind of math or whatever else it is but you're going to do that by writing your own piece of code for that. And it's the piece of code that kind of works for you, that, that resonates with your way of thinking or whatever. And so that would be, so that's sort of the first step. But then the second step would be, well, why don't you write a piece of code that actually represents you in some sense? And so that then in the course of education, the purpose becomes to kind of build up the, the code representation of you and your preferences. I mean, it's, it's sort of similar to the voting idea, but it's, it's, um, it's a different thing. It's kind of the, and that then becomes your representation, your sort of encoded representation of yourself. And of course, in the, you know, the way the world would actually evolve, it's like, okay, now somebody says, well, you know, you say, well, well where should I go work if there's a notion of work? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, well, the answer is take your piece of code, take the pieces of code that represent a bunch of companies and things, and, you know, match them up. And then you have, um, you know, that becomes the, the way of, um, uh, of doing something like that. Now, of course, um, uh, yeah, I mean, so I guess another question would be in, yeah, I mean, talking about work, there are clearly many, you know, look, anything that involves repeated judgment is going to go away. 
all of those, you know, all of those tasks, just as the tasks that involved um, kind of, uh, you know, there are, there are many kinds of professions where there is judgment, but it's the same piece of judgment over and over again. It's, you know, read this radi radiology, you know, film. Is there a broken bone or not? You know, that will be, and already is, something that can be readily automated. Things that involve figuring out what the point is or what one should do, you know, from, you know, what should this company do or something. You can't automate that for the same reasons that, you know, you can't automate goal creation. I think, I think a bunch of things actually, and for example, education, and that involve people persuading people what to do, I don't know how those will play out. Um, I know one of the things I've always found interesting is, is um, uh, well, for example, okay, so take medical area. So I think machines will become better at diagnosis than humans are fairly quickly. As soon as sensor-based medicine actually sort of engages properly, that will happen. Um, then, then the question is, can you get the human to do what they should do in order to not, you know, like should, can you get the human to not eat terrible food or whatever? That may require a human to get them to do that, so to speak. In other words, it may be easier, you know, it may be that humans do not respond well to machines telling them you should do this, this, and this. Don't know, maybe there's a way that will be found to sort of gamify life so that you, you know, so, so you do the right thing. But, but I think, you know, a lot of these, um, uh, I found it interesting. So years ago at movie theaters in the US, there used to be, you know, they started putting in these machines to give out tickets, okay? And um, uh, so back in the day, you know, I would go into a movie theater, would have a machine to give out tickets, there'd be nobody at the machine, right? So I could just walk up to the machine, there'd be a big line of people waiting to buy a ticket from a person, nobody with the machine. You walk up to the machine, you know, it all works, it's all easy, right? And then, uh, actually it happened, it was kind of interesting, it happened in cities first, it happened in cities about three or four years before it happened in the suburbs, that the line for the machines started getting to be as, you know, the same length as the line for the people, and then the line for the people just went away, and it's only the machines, pretty much. Um, and, uh, you know, I think one of the things about those machines is that unlike what one might have thought from kind of Turing test ideas, the machines make strong use of the kind of visual interface. So that was the thing that wasn't anticipated, again, in kind of thinking about, but, but in any case, I mean, I, I guess that the whole question about what um, uh, sort of the future of work and how it relates to computational expression, so to speak. Um, and, uh, you know, does the future of work simply be everybody is a manager of AIs? It's a possibility, you know, that everybody is basically just telling the AIs what to do. Now, um, whether uh, an interesting question is how many people do you need to tell the AIs what to do? And in, in some sense, you know, is there... Um, by the time, and, and that I think relates actually again to these questions about, you know, sort of the, the AI constitution and so on, because one, one model of the world is there's just the supreme leader who tells all the AIs what to do, and that's kind of the end of the story, and then there's no other, the other model would be that everybody gets tell, tells the AIs what to do, um, and I suppose that, you know, in a sense, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe that is the correct view of the future of work, sort of almost inevitably so, that it's just telling the AIs what to do. Because in a sense, you know, as technology in, increases, there's just going to be, you know, there's things that the humans don't need to do. And in some, at some level, the only question is whether how much human, what human processing needs to happen in order to determine what the technology needs to do. You know, it could be that the humans could be making a judgment call, a repeated judgment call all the time about is this a good idea, is this a good idea, and the AIs could be, um, uh, um, but I don't think that's what will happen because I think those repeated judgment calls, it's kind of a funny thing actually, it, it, it sort of relates again to this question about the, the hierarchy of concepts that get developed because insofar as something becomes a repeated judgment call, it's probably automatable. And so then, you know, in a sense, the future of work has to be the creation of new kinds of things. Um, it's sort of interesting because, you know, people say, oh, companies should be innovative and things like that, which, um, you know, to many CEOs translates into, you know, well, we got a bunch of, you know, capital here, we got a bunch of, uh, you know, real estate here, and then we got to pour in some innovation here, um, <laughs> which is, uh, 
uh, kind of an interesting view of, of management, but that's the way it goes. Um, I, I think the question is whether, you know, in this model where any repeated judgment thing gets automated, then in a sense it is that frontier of innovation that becomes the only thing that the humans actually end up doing. Now, you know, what that, uh, yeah, I mean, this is in the optimistic view that at some level humans have a, a fundamental uh, kind of supply of, of sort of innovation and creativity. I don't know whether that, I mean, humans certainly have a diversity of goals and that kind of makes for, um, yeah, I think, I think there's a, at least an optimistic view of that that still gives the humans something to do. Um, but anyway, I, I don't know. Um, uh, so, you know, it, it, in a sense, the, um, you know, one model of the future there is that the future of work is kind of barking out orders at AIs and barking out those orders in the form of, of uh, sort of symbolic computational expression, so to speak. Anyway, yes? So, um, in the way to transition to this universal, universal com uh, computation literacy, how, what would be the role of AI in sustaining the transition? And how will the, how, what is its role also in reinventing the way we organize society, which is going, it's not going to be really productive based. Right? So first thing is, question is about uh, kind of the role of AI in the transition to an AI-based society. Um, you know, there's a question of to what extent can we automate education? I mean, we've got, you know, we're in this bizarre position where, you know, we will increasingly be able to model with AIs the way that our brains work. And we will increasingly be able to probably optimize the way that, you know, what is the precise concept that you need in order to understand this thing? You know, based on everything that you has been seen, how people have tried to do these adaptive learning things, which have been kind of crummy, crummy to date. But, you know, that will eventually presumably become possible. If we manage to model brains perfectly, we will know how to, you know, at least to some extent, there may be some sort of computational irreducibility difficulties, but to, in a good approximation, we'll be able to know this is the thing you need to tell the person right now to clear up this whole set of confusions. And that will be kind of, um, so I would imagine, so it's an interesting question, how much more efficient can education get? Um, you know, it's also a question of how much do you have to educate about because it's again this question of how, how broad is the frontier of concepts that you need to have once, you know, once a bunch of things have been automated, there's a lot you don't need to know because it's just been automated. And then, you know, even the things that you do need to know, what is the optimal way to learn them given a particular brain? And, and you know, every, you know, one feature of education is that it's pretty clear that personalized education is better than non-personalized education. Just like, you know, if you can, you know, each person has slightly different experiences, slightly different brain structure, whatever else it is, there'll be a better way to explain to each person something. Now, you know, there are collective effects, like people like to be, you know, if there's a whole classroom of kids or something, somebody will be like, I want to answer the question ahead of everybody else type thing. So those are, those are herd phenomena that I don't quite know how they play out. But in terms of the pure, you know, explain what's going on, it's clearly better to be able to do that in a way that resonates with that particular person than, than not. And, and knowing how to do that, I mean, this has been sort of the dream and the claim for 50 years of, you know, the teaching machines claim, which absolutely has not worked to date. I mean, what has worked to date is being able to teach more by teaching higher level concepts. But what, you know, being able to, you know, use Mathematica to teach math or something, that works. What doesn't work, I think, or what hasn't worked, is the use an adaptive learning system to be able to tell that kid, you know, based on what that kid and the mistakes the kid has made, figure out exactly what to do next, which teachers can do. And, but that, I think, is one of these, probably one of these repeated judgment types of things that will get automated. So, you know, I think that's the first, first step. I think that in terms of what, um, you know, my feeling is the thing, the most important thing to teach kids in today is this computational thinking thing defined as how do you tell an arbitrarily smart computer what you want to do? In other words, how do you take a thing that you're thinking about and convert that to something that you can represent in a way that an arbitrarily smart computer can understand what to do? There's a different mechanics of actually writing programs given what computers can actually do and all that kind of thing. But the first step is can you formulate your thought in a sufficiently precise way that you can explain it to a sufficiently smart computer. And, 
you know, it's the job of people like me to make the computer sufficiently smart that, you know, that there isn't an issue in, in actually doing the explaining to the computer. I think in terms of, of what will be, okay, so the next question will be what will be valuable in society at the point where, um, you know, where all of the kind of basic work is done by, um, uh, you know, done through the AIs. I think there is a, you know, there's sort of a silly um, piece of, of that that is, um, you know, if you look at industry, so I've got this thing I worked out I could show you um, of uh, the evolution over the last 150 years of what jobs people have been doing in the U.S. Right? It's known from Census Bureau data. It's a little bit of a mess to work it out because job categories have changed quite a bit over the last 150 years. But you look at this and you see, uh, you know, a bunch of trends. You know, agriculture goes down, although it, it, it levels off at some point. Manufacturing, actually fairly constant. Not some, you might have thought it would go, you know, have had, it had some, you know, some peaks. And it's gone down a bit from the peak, but it's not. One that's very constant is construction. Um, that's a decent fraction of the workforce is involved in construction. Um, that's interesting because that has been unautomatable because of basically lack of dexterity in robots. Once robot dexterity is solved, that will immediately get automated. I mean, all the stuff with, you know, putting in windows and putting up, you know, this, that, and the other will all get automated very quickly. Um, and then, you know, there are other areas like, uh, well, health and medicine has, has gone up a lot, although may, most in the U.S., most of the increases in nurses, um, not, uh, et cetera. Well, you can see the data I have has male-female breakdown and so on, so you can see a bunch of different phenomena from that. It's actually pretty interesting. This data is kind of, from a history lesson point of view, it's interesting because every little blip in this data represents some interesting historical trend. Um, but in any case, the main, uh, I, unfortunately, I, you know, I really, I've got this data because I was interested in kind of the future of jobs, and I really wasn't able to conclude that much from this data other than that, that you know, there's some things like uh, there's a little bit of an increase in, in jobs that are basically funded by the government in the U.S. Um, there's, a, there's an increase in education. Um, there's, it's not, I didn't conclude as much as I would have liked from that, from that data. But, but I think, you know, one of the questions is when, you know, many of these categories of jobs will indeed be automatable. And, um, and I think then, you know, where will production, productivity come from? I think it is a, you know, okay. So one point of view is that, you know, in countries where there are rich, mineable resources just sitting in the ground, there is a certain level of, of you know, of economic, of income that is just the result of mining stuff out of the ground. And it's quite, and you know, one point of view is that what we are effectively seeing as a, you know, as a civilization is we're starting to be able to mine stuff out of the computational universe and everybody gets to do that. And it's not something that's based on whether you happen to have some geology in your country or not. Um, and you know, there's a certain argument that a lot of, you know, just like you see in a bunch of countries in the world where, you know, where basically the country is fairly well off, but you know, not because it had anything particularly fantastic going for it from a sort of point of view of, of social organization or whatever else, but just because it has a bunch of stuff in the ground that can be mined. And you know, it could be that we are entering a time where you know, the whole world gets to do that, basically mining the computational universe. So what does that then mean? It probably means that you know, people talk about universal basic income and things like this, it probably means we're in a position where that will be, I, mean, I don't know, I'm not, I don't think about politics much, so I'm not, I don't know what that means politically, but I, you know, just as a practical matter, it could be that you just don't need that many people doing work. And so, and that in fact, most of what was the, the stuff that, you know, in some countries you could mine out of the ground to get value from, you can just mine from the computational universe. And then, you know, and, and when will be, what will be the distinguishing feature you know, is it necessary? I don't know. You know, this is a kind of geopolitical question which I don't really know the answer to. You know, is it the case? The so first question, the most fundamental geopolitical question, why are there about 200 countries in the world? You know, why aren't there more? Why aren't there less? You know, is that the right number? How does one break that down? You know, can one imagine doing a, you know, a, a, you know here's a bizarre possibility, okay? Here's a really bizarre possibility. The humans of, of um, all humans provide a piece of code that represents their, you know, preferences about the world, right? You do this giant piece of unsupervised learning cluster analysis, and you figure out how many countries there should be. Um, now, of course, this won't work, 
Um, but it's an interesting thought experiment because you know you can imagine that, and, and, and unfortunately they won't break down geographically and you know all kinds of terrible problems. But but you know so that's the first question: why are there why are there about two hundred countries in the world? Then you know another kind of question would be. Is there a situation, is it a stable situation if everybody has access to more or less the same resources? I don't know if that's a stable situation. It's been surprising, you know, to me, one of the things that's remarkable is how much, you know, it, the, the fact that technology is so cheap, you know, consumer, te consumer electronics technology is so cheap has been, I mean, it really might not have been that way. It might have been the case that, you know, you look at uh, less well-off parts of the world there might be no consumer electronics because it might just be expensive. It just happens not to be. And that's a case where things have been very flat. And I think with some of this, you know, AI will be similarly flat. There won't be, you know, AI is not expensive. There won't be any, um, uh, just like, I mean, it's a weird thing. Software is in a sense not expensive, although, you know, there's this bizarre situation where, you know, as a producer of software, right, it's, um, you know, it is some, you know, it costs something to produce the stuff. It doesn't have a unit production cost. And so in practice in the world, there's parts of the world that pay for software and there's parts of the world that don't pay for software. And you know, that has, I mean, I can tell you as, a, as just a simple you know, CEO of a software company, that has actual consequences. Like you know, when people in China say, you know, why doesn't this work in the Chinese version of whatever? The answer is because people don't buy it in China. And there's no point in us making it work because it just doesn't have a commercial, you know, it has no commercial feedback, and um, it, it, uh, you know, and it's, it's a. Um, so anyway, I, I think, um, so, you know, there's a question of, of, you know, I think it will be the case that a lot of stuff, you know, there'll be a lot of stuff that's automated. There'll be a lot of, you know, within a single society, the, the, I think, that, you know, there'll be the ability to. You know, the adding of value will mostly come about as a result of essentially having new things to tell the AIs to do. It will not be a matter of, I mean, it's just like, you know, in the past, actual human labor and, you know, doing things with, you know, having large armies and, you know, doing all that kind of thing. That was the important thing. Just having a lot of brawn to do stuff with was important, which it really isn't terribly important anymore in the world. I mean, it depends on the level of technology and so on, but it's clearly not, it's not even important in warfare. It's not important in lots of kinds of things. And I think, you know, similarly, certain kinds of, um, you know, and, and what's important will move slightly. And I think what's important will be, I mean, I have to say, I think this sort of computational thinking, being able to tell the AIs what to do, that's going to be important. And what will be interesting to see is how that gets distributed in the world, because it's not at all obvious. I mean, it's, it's not, you know, one of the perhaps disappointments in the software industry, for instance, is the fact that it is so concentrated in the US, um, which uh, I think is absolutely needless, but it's the way it's worked. And it's, you know, it's both concentrated in the US, often done by people who don't come from the US. Um, it's very bizarre situation. And other countries, you know, every, a whole series of countries have completely lost it in terms of the software industry over time. I mean, you know, England had a software industry basically completely gone. Um, continental Europe had software industry, but really didn't make it. Scandinavia, interestingly, has actually had some success in software industry in recent times. Um, in you know Japan, nothing except games. Uh, China, you know, very much trying to have a software industry now, although it's it's kind of and maybe it will succeed in some way. You know, it's a little bit bizarre when you meet the senior executives of companies there, and they'll say, "We are the Chinese." you know, Google, Facebook, whatever, you know, and that, that is their identification for themselves. It's just like, you know, it's like almost a translation, like this word in Chinese means this in English. It's very bizarre. I mean, you'd never see that in, in um, you know, in Western companies of somebody saying, we are the, you know, the French, whatever it is. Um, it's just, uh, you know, the, um, anyway, I, I think, um, I think it's sort of surprising that the software industry has not been more widely distributed geographically. Um, and it's, uh, you know, one can talk about the economic reasons that that's happened and, and people have tried to get software industry stuff started in different countries and it's mostly been a failure. And even, even in cities in the U.S. it's mostly, I mean, what's happened in the U.S., right, so Silicon Valley, 
very successful. Silicon Valley went through kind of a near-death experience, but it's now kind of pretty, pretty strong. It's got a lot of different companies. Uh, New York had nothing, is now quite strong. New York is very strongly the number two sort of software place in the country. Uh, Boston kind of blib, 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 hasn't really, hasn't really made it. Um, Austin, Texas has done remarkably well. Um, you know, then there's some other places that have done well, um, but they're, they're, it's sort of interesting what the dynamics of that have been. Um, and it's, you know, outside the U.S., uh, it's, it's kind of dismal. Um, and uh, um, I think, uh, you know, it will be interesting to see in this next round of technological innovation where that happens, how that happens, because it's certainly not true, you know, and probably one of the determiners, maybe one of the determiners will be widespread computational thinking education for, for kids. I don't know how that will play out. I don't know whether the, how the timescales will play out. That is, if that starts to happen now, will there be a generation of kids in 10, 15 years who are starting to be kind of able to be leaders of the next generation of kind of industry? Or will it happen, will the industry that gets to be the next generation happen too quickly? And so there isn't really time to sort of educate a, a generation of kids to do that. I mean, I know in some countries around the world, you know, some of the interest in computational thinking education has, is for defense reasons because of worrying about computer security issues. Um, and that's, that's one that is, that's, that's more of a, that's a strange kind of brains brawn type issue because that's a place where people think just having more people to work for, you know, they, to do cybersecurity for a country is going to make the country safer, which is probably true for the time being. I mean, whether that will continue, you know, how that will play out with AI, I'm not sure. Um, but, but um, yeah, I mean, this question of, of where, where the value will lie is, um, my guess is, it's kind of telling the AIs what to do and, you know, figuring out how to think computationally and have people convert what they imagine doing. You know, because what's going to happen is somebody's going to have I don't know, some, you know, in, in any place there might be some special, I don't know, somebody's going to have the idea of making some, I don't know, uh, some port or something. And they're going to have, you know, somebody's going to figure out, okay, we can set this up so that we have all these containerized ships coming in and we have this automated system that, you know, routes things around and so on and so on and so on. And somebody else isn't going to figure that out. They're going to figure out that they have a bunch of people with clipboards you know, trying to check in ships, and the, the place that's going to figure out the automation is going to win. And, you know, whether that happens because, you know, that's maybe a bad example because that's one where realistically those things are so expensive to make that it'll be a global, you know, the contractor who builds it will be some global thing. But anyway, not, not, not a very good example. But, but somehow I, I think that's what's, um, I mean, it's my, my best guess for what the, what the kind of the, the critical resource for future is but I also think that an awful lot of stuff that has required human labor today will simply not, you know, simply not require that. And so, you know, how many hours a week will people have to work? Now, this is one of these things like the paperless office. Okay, when when things, you know, this is what's happened now. People say, oh, well, there's more automation. Why don't why aren't people working less? Because in the U.S., at least, people seem to be working more, not less. Um, so, you know, but I, I think in the end just like the paperless office eventually does now exist. You know, I have a, I have a printer and I print something on it only about once every three months. Um, and, uh, you know, and I've had the same printer in it for a decade practically. Um, and I just don't, you know, I don't care about it. I don't think I have to reload the paper in it more often than once every couple of years. Um, it's, uh, you know, I think that there are, you know, so it's not the case just because we're seeing an increase in, in, you know, in work now that that will continue as a result of automation. I don't think it will. Um, and uh, I mean, you know, th there's also the question of what do people want to do, right? So, so it could be the case. Here's a bizarre scenario, okay, which actually played out a few years ago. Um, you know, people playing games like these, you know, virtual worlds games, right? And so then people want to, the most, one of the more bizarre things that I heard, which I don't, may have been exaggerated, I don't know, is when, you know, when Farmville was popular, there was this moment when it was better for farmers in Africa to be playing Farmville for Americans than it was for them to be actually producing crops, which is, you might say, is completely nuts. But, you know, it's something where um, the, um, 
uh, you know, the question of what people want to have happen. It could be the case that in the future, you know, there'll be a huge industry of people playing video games for each other, so to speak. Um, that will be, you know, the analog of, of which to us seems like that just seems completely crazy as an economic theory. Um, but I suppose so would, you know, the fact that there are, you know, very wealthy people who are quants, you know, playing with, you know, high frequency trading with derivatives and so on. That seems pretty nuts too. Yet that is a, you know, that's a thing that, um, what's that? What's that? Yeah, that also is a is a slightly nuts. Well, that's that's um, yeah. I mean, we'll see how that actually you know that that has had its moment. I think that the, there will be there will be, I suspect, increasing cracks in that picture because I I made quite a study actually because we've been interested in our own kind of future of our own software stack, and um, you know we're probably going to make an open source microkernel for the world from language. And so we're interested in how the dynamics of that will really work. And the story of open source is not really as rosy a story as one might think, because what actually happens in most projects is some company cares and they fund it. Like IBM funded Linux, like, you know, uh, well, Sun funded Java and so on. And, you know, what it is is that for some company, you know, or AT&T originally funded Unix, um, some, you know, some company has that you know, it's a it's a spin-off feature of what they're doing. It's not the, the main part of their business. And it's like like if we were, you know, my company does a bunch of stuff, well, like like for example, the summer school is a good example. This is a spin-off feature, right? If we were a, a university, my gosh, we will be charging for the summer school because that's how we make our you know, that's how we make our living. As it is, you know, it's not what we do. So it's a you know, so it's a freebie, so to speak. Um, and you know, it's something where uh, you know, this sort of shell game of value gets moved around. But I think the perception that open source is this sort of supply of value is really not quite correct. Because what happens is, you know, if you look at the total cost of ownership of most of these solutions, it looks pretty bad. I mean, what, and what ends up happening is that there are an awful lot of fake open source products. Like, for example, I was, you know, like a lot of these enterprise type things, like the CRM system that we used was supposedly an open source system, except mysteriously it seems to cost a ton of money every year. Um, because in fact, we're paying for, you know, the maintenance, the this, the that, um, to a company that is the company that created this system. I mean, it's not like it's a, um, uh, and I don't even know in what sense it's open source. I have no idea in what sense it's open source, except that it, it had that, you know, that brand originally. Um, so. But yes, it's, it's an interesting, you know, different business model that one might not have thought would work. I mean, the, look, the whole internet and the way that that's worked is pretty bizarre. You know, and the fact, okay, for me, when, you know, when the people, you know, when the guys started Google, I had, I thought this idea that they were going to burn $100 million and then sort of come up the other side with some business model that was based on just everybody using their stuff just seemed completely nuts to me. And the fact that the model that emerged was, was advertising just seemed nuts because to me, you know, it's like a, an ultimate pyramid scheme. It's like I will show you an ad. Somebody will pay for that ad. Somebody will pay for the, you know, there's, there's many layers of advertising. But at the end of it, somebody actually has to buy something and do something. And, you know, it's, it's charming when there are ads that are selling ads and there are, you know, I've seen them about three or four levels deep now. Um, and it's just, just very weird um, that that can possibly work. But yeah, so so definitely there are, um, and, and I'm sure there will be models in the sort of AI world that are unexpected models of how, you know, how people. That's such an interesting question. What what are the places where people will add value, which are kind of unexpected places? I mean, the expected places are well. I mean, look, there are new job categories that are coming up all the time, like, you know, AI, like machine machine trainer, as opposed to animal trainer. Right, machine trainer as a new job category. I mean, we just, you know, we just hired, well, we just hired one person whose sole job is basically um, wrangling the data for machine learning. Right? And we've got, you know, we, in the past we've hired people who were doing linguistic curation, another kind of weird new job category. But this this idea of machine learning trainer, you know, that's going to be a job category, and um, uh, whether that is, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, you know, th there'll be some, okay, so look, there's some things which I can easily see. 
So one thing is sort of all the data in all the companies in the world will get curated to the point where it is computable. That will cost a trillion dollars, roughly. And that trillion dollars will be spent in the next some number of years. Um, and you know, once that has been spent, uh, a bunch of things about companies will become much more efficient. You know, companies will be able to, you know, basically, in a in a simple-minded version, that's you know, make Wolfram Alpha, make a custom version of Wolfram Alpha operate on the data of every company. That's the um, that's why I know this price estimate um, is, uh, uh, but you know, and so that's. You know, that's an example of something where there will be job categories created for doing, you know, data curators and all kinds of things like this that don't exist today, because there's a trillion dollars of, of um, you know, of value that will pump through there as that happens. Um, once it's been done, uh, you know, then that's an interesting question. What does that then enable? It means that, you know, the whole question of, you know, can management tell what's going on in their company becomes a lot easier. Um, uh, that presumably allows companies to have more complicated business strategies. I mean, just like you know, uh, uh, the price of plane tickets is a good example of something where that market became much more. I mean, it's amazing to me how full commercial planes are these days. You know, it used to be back 20 years ago. You know, half the planes you would get on would have almost nobody on them. Um, now they're they're usually quite full, and that's a remarkable testament to the you know making that market much more efficient. And making it, you know, and figuring out, and that's probably what will happen, uh, you know, again when, um, uh, you know, when companies are more have made their data internal data more computable, they'll be able to operate in more, you know, have more complicated business models, which will be more efficient. Um, so the, the artificial neural network, we, we don't really understand the features that they're sort of looking at when they're trying to compute data. And so, 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 do you think that um, we we should make an effort to understand those features? better to find more applications, but is it, is it the case that you don't think we, the humans will ever be able to keep up? So we should just sort of accept that these are these black boxes that are sort of going I think we should make an effort to understand them because there might be a science there that we can actually crack. Um, there might not be. I don't know. I don't know how far that will go. Um, I think that the, the key question right now is, so you have these new building blocks of computational work. How can you assemble them into things that are useful to us? That is, you know, we've got image identification or something, but how can we do, you know, other kinds of operations? Like, for example, you know, style transfer was not one that I'd actually thought of, right? Of, of something where you say, make this look like a Van Gogh painting, right? Now, you know, there are even more useful versions of that. Like, here's a map, here's a satellite image. Make the satellite image look like the map. You know, that will probably work. And if that works, then we just solve the problem of making maps from satellite images, which is a big problem. Um, and uh, you know, but but conceptualizing that that's a possible thing to do is not not so easy. Now, if we want to learn, so I think to conceptualize those things, if we did know what building blocks, I mean, like like for example, right now it's kind of crazy. You know, these these neural nets. Uh, you know, I don't know. I I have no idea what you know. You put them together, you have you know, three hundred layers. It's completely unclear. You know, people tweak the layers. Various things happen. Nobody really understands what's going on. Um, you know, we'll probably have automated much of that search in the architecture of neural nets within a year or two. Um, it's, uh, you know, what will happen? I don't know. You'll get some weird architecture you don't understand. It may be a local minimum. There may be a much better architecture that could be found by being cleverer. Who knows? Um, I think, does it matter? Uh, Good question. I mean, that's the same question as sort of does science matter? By, by having this be a black box, you're essentially making a model, but it's not a, a science like, it's not an understandable, it's not a model for which there's a human story. It's a model which is just, it works, just like in the natural world, things just work. Um, but we don't have sort of a story about how, you know, science provides a story about how the things in the natural world work. Otherwise, it's just a black box. The donkey does what it does. We don't know how the donkey works. Um, or another case, you know, the weather does what it does, and we have no idea how it works, as opposed to having some theory and weather prediction and all this kind of thing. So I think it's a, you know, I think, look, I think that in the neural net area, there is the likelihood of a kind of math-style breakthrough in the next couple of years that will kind of unlock, I mean, my own, uh, I su somewhat suspect that that breakthrough has a decent chance to allow kind of NKS into the neural net world. 
because right now those are two se somewhat separate things because of the way that the sort of structure of, of discrete program space works relative to the way that um, uh, the way that things work with um, 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 the, with, with sort of continuous neural net parameters and so on. Any last thing, and then we should probably wrap up, please. So I'm curious when you uh, say that we have to tell the AI what to do. So what sort of AI do you visualize? Do you visualize like a general AI which uh, is capable of performing a large set of tasks, or do you visualize uh, more of a local AI which can perform one particular task, like say driving a car or detecting an anomaly in an image? No, it'll be a global thing, just like universal computation. It's not, there's no, the, 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 you know, we can already see this. The economy of scale of AIs is such that there's no reason to have a, a local AI. I mean, it just, you know, it's just going to be, now the question is how interconnected the AI will be. And, you know, we humans have limited sensory input. You know, there's no reason you can't have the, the IoT AI thing where the thing has, you know, inputs about everything in the world. I mean, I think that the, you know, look, the fundamental thing that AIs will do in the early stages for humans is uh, one thing is we tell the AIs what to do. The other thing is the AIs tell us what to do. And, you know, we already see this with GPSs in cars, for example. You know, the AI is telling us what to do. Increasingly, you know, the, it, it won't be long. I don't know, perhaps within, I don't know how long. This is one of these, I don't know how many years it'll be. But eventually, it's like, you know, it's been, you know, wearing glasses will be back in fashion because there'll all be augmented reality. Um, and uh, the, um, um, I think, uh, uh, you know, and what that augmented reality thing will do is it will say things like, you know, it'll be looking at this room and it'll say, oh, based on, you know, this person, you know, it knows all sorts of stuff about interactions with different people. It'll have a little annotation thing saying that person you should talk to about this, all that kind of thing. So it'll be suggesting things that we should do. It'll say things like, um, you know, it'll see me looking at that piece of chocolate and it'll say, you don't need to eat that piece of chocolate. Um, you, uh, you know, it's, um, you've had this number of calories, your, you know, your blood sugar level is this, your whatever, 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 you know, you don't need to eat that piece of chocolate. Um, the, um, you know, I think that uh, this is kind of my vision for insofar as the AIs take over the world, you know, I think the first way that happens is that the people just follow what the AIs tell them to do. And, you know, in the case of, it's actually sort of interesting that there's been no fiasco with GPS. It could have been the case, actually this hasn't happened to my knowledge in any country, that GPS has been corrupted by commercial forces. Because it could be the case that one could learn, you know, let's say, even a toll road, for example. One might think that, you know, GPSs, that somebody would have, it just, just occurred to me, I'm surprised this hasn't happened that somebody would have tried to get GPSs to route people through toll roads. Because after all, they probably, you know, the state of Massachusetts or something would probably collect 5% more money if GPSs tended to route people through toll roads. Um, and, you know, that, that particular thing hasn't happened. But it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because it's a situation where, you know, the, the, um, uh, the effect, I mean, you know, we're in the position of being sort of a provider of at least the low-level tools for, you know, for what's likely to happen in sort of the AI-assisted world. But it's an interesting question how that actually works. I mean, you know, the other image of the, the augmented reality world is the world is full of advertising post-its everywhere. And it's kind of, that's the, that's the future of kind of, um, uh, you know, that every single place is. And, and of course, you know, this is one of the things, I mean, I'm afraid my sometime friend Richard Stallman and his whole push for open source you know, one of its consequences is this, um, uh, and a lot of this will give you free stuff thing, is this sort of trade-off of people, you know, okay, when it's, if it, is, if it becomes the case that the world is ad-supported, that is, that everything, you know, you're looking around and this whole infrastructure of augmented reality and AI and all this kind of thing, the whole thing is ad-supported, I think, you know, I don't understand how this pyramid can stand up, so to speak. I mean, in other words, when, when it's kind of ad support all the way down and it's kind of, and you can't even pay to, you know, to not have this, I, I don't know how that works. But that's my, that's my kind of vision for, you know, the world is covered with advertising post-its. Um, and, uh, you know, nobody can see, um, instead of seeing the, the forest for the trees, it's seeing, you know, 
seen anyway. Never mind. I think, um, but uh, uh, yeah, no. I mean, I, I think this whole question of, of um, sort of the AIs telling us what to do and being able to model, you know, being able to know better than we know what the consequences of certain actions would be, you know, if uh, you know, um, if I. <clears throat> If I do this or that thing, you know, the AI can work out. Is it much easier for the AI to model what's going to happen in many situations than for me? Um, and so, you know, that's a, that's a, um, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, we should wrap up. All right. Thanks. It was fun. To You've been listening to the final episode in our series on the future of AI and civilization with Stephen Wolfram. For more information on Stephen's blog posts, books, and live coding streams, visit stephenwolfram.com.